This is the Daily Signal podcast for Tuesday, February 1st. I'm Mary Margaret Olihan. And I'm Virginia Allen. Churches across the country have faced many challenges navigating the pandemic while still working on shepherding their own communities. Doug Blair sits down with Pastor Marty Haas today to discuss how churches have been affected by the pandemic and the unique role faith communities have and still do play during the time of COVID-19. But before we get to Doug's conversation with Pastor Marty Haas, let's hit our top stories of the day. Russia accused the U.S. of whipping up hysteria over Ukraine during a United Nations Security Council meeting on Monday. Russian Ambassador Vasily Nebenzia said America was provoking escalation between Russia and Ukraine by saying that Russia is about to invade Ukraine. Tensions are high between the two nations right now, with more than 100,000 Russian troops stationed on Ukraine's border. The Security Council meeting was called to discuss the situation between Russia and Ukraine. The U.S. ambassador to the United Nations, Linda Thomas-Greenfield, was very clear that Russia's actions of amassing troops on Ukraine's border is a threat to peace, per Guardian News. Russia's actions strike at the very heart of the UN Charter. This is as clear and consequential a threat to peace and security as anyone can imagine. Thomas Greenfield accused Russia of trying to paint Ukraine and Western nations as the aggressors in the situation. The Russian ambassador shot back at Thomas Greenfield, saying that America is waiting for an attack, as if you want your words to become a reality. The confrontation was one of the sharpest exchanges seen in years at a U.N. Security Council meeting. Two Republican members of Congress criticized former President Donald Trump for suggesting over the weekend that former Vice President Mike Pence should have overturned the 2020 presidential election results. What they are saying is that Mike Pence did have the right to change the outcome, and they now want to take that right away, Trump said in a Sunday statement. Unfortunately, he didn't exercise that power. He could have overturned the election. Liz Cheney of Iowa and Adam Kinzinger are the only Republicans serving on the House Select Committee that is investigating the January 6th Capitol riot. These two Republicans lashed out at Trump on Twitter. Trump uses language he knows caused the January 6th violence, suggests he'd pardon the January 6th defendants, some of whom have been charged with seditious conspiracy, threatens prosecutors, and admits he was attempting to overturn the election, tweeted Cheney, adding, he'd do it all again if given the chance. This is an admission and a massively un-American statement, Kinzinger tweeted. It is time for every Republican leader to pick a side, Trump or the Constitution. There is no middle on defending our nation anymore. California Governor Gavin Newsom attended the 49ers-Rams football game over the weekend and was photographed not wearing a mask. The former Lakers star Magic Johnson posted photos with Newsom and Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti and San Francisco Mayor London Breed. None of the Democrats were wearing masks in the photos. California is currently under a universal indoor mask mandate. SoFi Stadium is an indoor-outdoor stadium with a canopy roof and open sides. But even if some consider the stadium to be outdoors, SoFi Stadium requires everyone to wear a mask except when eating and drinking. 
Many took to Twitter to call Newsom a hypocrite for requiring Californians to wear a mask while he did not. Now stay tuned for Doug's conversation with Pastor Marty Haas as they discuss the challenges churches have faced during the pandemic. My name is Claire Marker. I'm Jonathan Ski. And I'm Natasha Chunyowski. And we're, and we're interns, interns at, at the Heritage, Heritage Foundation. Foundation. The Heritage Foundation Young Leaders Intern Program gives college students and recent graduates the opportunity to work for America's leading conservative think tank. Intern opportunities span from research and writing to filming and editing videos, creating social media content, organizing heritage events, and much, much more. I'm Paloma Chacon, and this semester I'm interning in Heritage's communication department, and every day I get hands-on experience in audio and video editing. Every Heritage intern has the opportunity to participate in weekly first principle seminars and policy briefings you will hear from leading experts on the big issues facing America today. The Heritage Foundation offers housing for all interns right in the center of Washington, D.C. And the best part, it's a paid internship. So if you want to apply for next semester's program, visit heritage.org, click on About Heritage at the top of the page, and then click Careers. You'll find the link for the Young Leaders program there with all the instructions on how you can apply today. My guest today is Pastor Marty Haas, a biblical counseling pastor at Grace Church in Maryland Heights, Missouri. Pastor, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Of course. I want to talk to you today about how your church has been affected by the pandemic, both the virus itself and the response. So to start out, how did the early days of the pandemic affect your church? Well, at the very beginning, before there were any talk uh, about government-enforced lockdowns, we actually discussed whether we would want to close down the church and not have services for like two weeks, um, because that's what they were initially talking about, right? It's going to take two weeks if everybody just stays home, and and there was no mandates, but we said, you know, let's let's look at that, and we were debating that and talking to other churches, seeing what they were going to do, and then all of a sudden, before we could uh, move forward with what we were going to decide, they in, instituted the first lockdown in our area. And so that was really odd for us. Now, we were already having our services broadcast online, so that didn't catch us by surprise. We were prepared there, but uh, we had no idea it was going to go so long and that uh, it was going to become such a divisive issue. How did your parishioners respond to the initial pandemic? Were they scared? Were they saying, we need to keep going in person? Were they wanting to shift to virtual? I don't think anyone had a big problem with going virtual for a short term. Um, But what became a problem for us and so many other churches is that the lockdowns were getting to be so long and people were getting so scared that everybody's wanting to do just virtual. And then it became hard to come back together again. A lot of us were eager to get back. A lot of us came back, you know, right away as soon as we could. But others were like, oh, this is nice. I don't have to get dressed in the morning. And and that's becoming a problem because church is about more than simply hearing worship and hearing the teaching. It's about the relationships and the interactions, the encouragement that we can give to one another. And that doesn't happen through online church. It sounds like you're still having that issue. Well, yeah, our, our attendance has not come back up to what it used to be. Uh, we're doing pretty well. Um, I'm not going to complain about it. We're doing pretty well, but we want to reach 
uh, everybody. We want to get the people who used to be here back and we want to reach more people. And the fear is uh, an issue there. At the outset of the pandemic, houses of worship were often specifically targeted by government officials as being non-essential. And a lot of these restrictions that we saw on non-essential businesses, uh, like very heavy uh, capacity restrictions or inability to open at all, were being very specifically targeted towards churches. How does it make you feel that the government didn't view worship services as essential? Well, I think it's very, um, very telling about the attitudes of those who are in power in making those calls. Um, they are very focused on economics and they're very focused on very specific economics, aren't they? Um, it's amazing that they would have uh, uh, liquor stores open. Oh, that's essential, but churches are not. And what we have quickly seen happen and seen verified by others outside the church itself is that we were much more essential than they were willing to admit. Um, we having everybody locked down at home, we started seeing the problems with suicide and the problems with depression and, and other mental illnesses just skyrocketing. And so places like church where we not only get to interact and fellowship, but to encourage one another and, and give each other hope and build each other up and comfort one another are critical. And the government needs to recognize that. But it comes down to individuals who are in the government, give, give individuals who are in power. And uh, so we want to pay more attention to who we're electing. Government wasn't the only entity that seems to be targeting uh, religious institutions, mm -hmm. specifically your religious institution. So in November of 2021, the church's 11 a.m. message was taken down by YouTube for supposedly going against community guidelines around vaccine misinformation. Could you tell us about this incident and kind of what happened? Yeah. Um there's this long-standing belief that there's a wall of separation between church and state that is designed in such a way by our constitution to keep the church from getting involved in the state. But historically, that was never the case. That was not the intent. If you go back and you look at it, the whole purpose of that was to keep the state from trying to tell the church what to do. If you read the works of our founding fathers, they actually were counting on the church being involved in government. They said that um, a government like ours could not exist without a moral people, and a moral people could not exist without the church. And so what's happened is, as a, as a whole in our country, most churches have backed off from ever touching anything that seems to involve politics. And we were guilty of that as well. But over recent years, we've been looking at what the government has been doing, and it's, it's clear that the government is the one that has stepped across that boundary and has moved into the realm of what is the church. So when the government is promoting immorality, when the government is going against the biblical standards and, and trying to get people to go against biblical standards, it becomes the responsibility of the church, not just the, the organization, but the individual members of the church as well, to speak up and let the world know. And so we've been doing that. And we've been talking about um, how so much of what's happening with COVID, so much of what's happening in our government right now is anti-biblical. And we just knew it was just a matter of time until we'd get censored. And YouTube shut us down, as you, as you pointed out. And uh, I was surprised that they didn't do it sooner. Um, and I'm surprised that they haven't done it since. But um, we've seen it not just with our churches. There have been some other churches, a lot of or, uh, nonprofit organizations who are on the conservative side are being silenced by the social media. 
outlets. I would just look at what Facebook is doing to individuals on a regular basis of putting up all these warnings on their posts. There is a concerted effort to silence the conservative voice which arises out of Christianity. Did YouTube ever end up putting the video back up or is it still down? <laughs> That's a good question. Quite honestly, I haven't gone back and looked to see. Um, as far as I know, they've not put it back up. I'm curious because you mentioned in your last response that one of the things that we're dealing with right now is a culture that is contrary to biblical principles, that there's a lot of stuff going on in our state right now that runs contrary to the founding principles that are based in, in, in biblical principles. Would you be able to elaborate on some of those aspects of our culture and of our state that are, in your opinion, contrary to biblical principles? Okay, let's let's go back to one of the oldest um, ones that we've seen as a political force, and that's the abortion issue. Um, abortion is clearly murder. If you look at the science of it, the, as it exists today, we now know that the moment the sperm enters the egg, we have a new human life. It is not simply tissue. It is a, a separate life, indistinct, uh, or very distinct, I should say, from the mother. Um, and so when uh, the state is uh, promoting abortion, and when they're fighting and, and trying to label it uh, reproductive rights, it's not about reproduction. It's against reproduction. It's a, it's a, a killing of a human life. Uh, that's immoral and that's unbiblical. Um, the Bible's very strong on being pro-life. Then what's much more recent is what we've seen happening in terms of sexuality. Uh, when I was growing up, you would never have expected that people would come out of the closet like they have on homosexuality. That was considered by the, the vast, vast majority of Americans to be a perversion. They saw it as a mental illness. The uh, American Psychological Association considered it a mental illness. Um, but not only has homosexuality come out of the closet, now it's a it's a pride thing where they're, they're trying to force us who believe it is a sin to not only say it's not a sin, but to celebrate it and promote it as equal to heterosexuality, to take away from it all the stigma and the moral um, issues regarding it. Then from there, they've moved into uh, the transvestite thing. Notice how it went from L you know, homosexuality, just one word, to LGBTQ plus A. I mean, it's, it just keeps expanding. And now they're trying to go into the schools and they're trying to tell our grade school children not only that homosexuality is okay and that it's a good thing, and maybe you're homosexual, you little five or six-year-old kid, and now they're trying to tell them, oh, maybe you're not even a boy. Maybe you're a girl. Uh, don't look at what your, what your biology tells you. And this is very, very um, sacred to God, the way he's made us. And this is obviously a parent's domain. This is their right to interact with their child on these issues, not the, not the right of the state. You've probably heard about what's happened recently in uh, one school, I believe it was in California, where uh, the teachers were working with a, a little girl who was under the age of 10, I believe. And uh, they were telling her, oh, you're really a boy. And they're, they're doing all this secretly, but behind, without telling the parents what's going on until they finally bring the little girl's mother in 
and try to tell her that your daughter's really a boy. And that has, has become a, a, a problem, not just there, but that soon we're going to be seeing that everywhere. Now, Pastor, we just had the March for Life here in D.C., and there was a massive crowd. So on abortion, it seems like there is movement in the other direction. It seems like a lot of parents who are becoming aware of these gender ideologues in schools are coming out and saying that they're it's not acceptable for schools to be teaching this type of content. With all of this in mind, do you see that our, our culture is going in the right direction or do you think we need to do more? How do you view our culture as moving back towards biblical principles? I think it would be wonderful if we did, but quite frankly, I'm not sure that that's happening. I'm not sure that's going to happen. Um, on the issue of abortion, we have spent how many decades now working to move the culture on that? And we're succeeding somewhat there. Um, although I, I've heard young people tell me, uh, why don't you drop that? That's a done deal. That's already over. That, that fight is already lost. And it shocks me to hear people saying that. But um, there's a young man in his early 30s who was saying that to me a few years ago when he was like 28, 29 years old. He was saying, that's, that's, that issue's over. And I'm like, no, it's not. But these other issues are brand new and they're we are moving in the wrong direction and it's the youth because they've moved into the grade school, high school and college campuses. And they've been indoctrinating our kids at those ages when they're the most vulnerable, when they're the most malleable. And so they're getting them to think this way. And I think it could take quite a while before those young people have been around long enough to start seeing the fruit and to really recognize and admit to the fruit of these doctrines that they've been taught. I want to return to the topic of censorship. Um, obviously, we talked about your video that was censored by YouTube, but this is clearly not just happening with your church. Other organizations have also been censored for uh, quote unquote COVID-19 misinformation. So I'm, have you had the opportunity to talk with other faith-based organizations that have been censored? Um, honestly, I have not. I've read about them online. Um, I, I do a lot of reading and try to keep up with it there, but I haven't spoken with any, but yeah, the, the, the censorship issue is really fascinating because what you'll see happening is they'll actually censor somebody and call it misinformation when the person is quoting directly from the CDC itself, when they find that the CDC has made statements that are going against the current uh, COVID dialogue or narr narrative, then they're being silenced. Doctors have been silenced. Nurses have been silenced. Um, some, of the, some of the best experts in the fields are being silenced. And so it's not just churches um, that, are, that are facing this. Right. One of the things that's really interesting about Grace Church is that it has two campuses. There are two separate buildings that are in two separate states. One, the main building is in Maryland Heights, Missouri, and the other one is in Illinois. Have you noticed that there is a difference in how those two churches have been treated vis-a-vis -vis the COVID-19 pandemic in terms of restrictions, in terms of attendance, in terms of sort of the other aspects of in-person worship? <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Illinois is much stricter than uh, Missouri is. Uh, Illinois was really clamping down hard. 
Um, and so we know that the churches over on that side have had a harder go of it. What's interesting though, to me is too, we are in St. Louis, we've got the Missouri River next to us and we're in St. Louis County. But if you cross the river, now you're in St. Charles County, both in Missouri. And in St. Charles County, it's very, very free. It's very open, uh, no restrictions, no mask requirements. In St. Louis County, you cross that river and suddenly you're entering COVID territories. S somehow it's super dangerous to be on this side of the river. Um, and then if you cross the next river into Illinois, it's even worse. So it really is uh, going to vary from one political area to the next. What exactly are some of the restrictions on your church right now? That's a great question. Um, because, quite frankly, um, we have just come through a political thing in uh, St. Louis where we had the governor uh, saying that the local governments cannot impose mask restrictions and all this. And Sam Page, who is the executive director of St. Louis County, was doing it anyway. And the, it became a legal battle and the courts just sided with Sam Page. So there is a mask requirement right now in St. Louis County, but I don't know if anybody's really imposing it. I am not, I, I can walk into stores and they're ignoring it. And uh, we're ignoring it here at the church. Um, there was a very strong restriction on the number of people we could have in. We were only allowed to have uh, 20, and this is interesting, we can have 25% of our auditorium capacity. That's what we were allowed to have in um, a while back. But that was, was lifted um, and has not, not been reimposed. I think people are so burned out on these restrictions that the politicians are going to find it harder and harder to impose new ones. Have you visited the church in Illinois and, and found there are similarities in how you're, the restrictions are sort of harsh there as well? They are harsh there, but quite frankly, they're ignoring them. <laughs> so uh, we haven't been busted for it now that you're asking me this on air. Maybe we'll be, but, but uh, we have just kept our, our heads low and been going about business as usual. What has been the response from parishioners to some of the more assertive political messaging that you've had on these topics like abortion, gender ideology, and of course, COVID-19? And let me throw another one in there for you. And that's the whole race issue, um, the Black Lives Matter movement and the critical race theory. Um, that critical race theory thing is what really got us going because we are a very interracial um, church. The, the racial makeup of our community um, is actually lower than what the racial makeup of our church has been. We've had other pastors who've come to visit us, and they've always been amazed at, at how much of a great interracial mix-up we had here. And they ask us, how did you do it? And we tell them, we didn't. God just did this. We've had people tell us, you need, a, you need to have an African-American on your pastoral staff since you have so many African-Americans. And our response is, no, we will have on our staff whomever God calls. And it doesn't matter to us if everyone on our staff is African-American or if no one is. And so sometimes we have, sometimes we haven't. But when this critical race theory stuff came out, um, at first we were blindsided by it. And then when we started finding out what, what it really was teaching, we, f we spoke out against it 
And we had a huge, huge backlash in our church. And we've lost a lot of members over it um, because a lot of them don't understand that this isn't about racism. In fact, it is using racism to push Marxism. And, if, and what it's really doing is trying to increase the conflict over race rather than to bring peace. And so we have lost a lot of members. We've also gained a whole lot of members. There are a lot of people who've gotten uh, tired of going to churches where the pastors will never speak out on these moral issues. And so they've started coming to Grace because they heard we were. And none of the parishioners that left have realized that it's not about racism and have come back. It's, it's kind of a done deal. Oh, no. Some of them are coming back. Some of them are. Absolutely. And uh, a good friend of mine who is a, a black man here at the church who is oh, such a man of God. He's been uh, a leader in our prison ministry and he's been faithfully serving here for decades. And he, he got on the phone and started calling some of his friends and saying, get back here. <laughs> he, he's like, <laughs> what are you doing? Um, but, and it's not just African-Americans who've left the church. It's, it's a lot of Caucasians as well, because nobody wants to be a racist and nobody wants to feel like they're being a part of an organization that's racist. And until we can get them to recognize that this isn't racism, um, until they can start to say, we can get them to actually stop and say, Hey, wait a minute, be objective. Just be objective. Have you ever witnessed racism here? Have you ever experienced it here? Have you seen anything but love here and acceptance and unity? Um, until they start to recognize that, um, they're buying into what our culture has been selling. And uh, that's, that's something we just have to keep pushing forward and praying and, and educating people about. And so that's what we're doing. You've given quite a few examples of how these new age sort of ideologies like critical race theory, for example, are very divisive. I want to take a look at the sort of larger picture here. What are the stakes if our culture doesn't shift back towards traditional morality? We're going to see, first of all, a wider and wider gap. You know, we talk about how polarized our our government is, um, how much division there is between the left and the right, that's not going to go away. That's going to increase. Um, obviously, there have been some radical voices out there talking about civil war. And I'm not pushing that, but I am saying that we're not going to be united as a country anymore. We're going to see um, more and more of a push by the individuals who do not believe in tolerance. They've redefined tolerance. Tolerance no longer means that you accept somebody else's differences. It's no, you have to believe what we tell you to believe or you're not tolerant. Well, those people are going to be pushing to change the, the constitution. I've heard talk about that where they, you know, they've done interviews with some young people and asked them what they feel about the first amendment. And we're hearing more and more people saying that they don't agree with the First Amendment anymore. Um, they believe that um, speech should be controlled, that there should be more controls on that. And that sounds great when you are the one who gets to control it. But when you're not the one in control, oh, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. I, I didn't mean that. You shouldn't be able to control my speech. And we're going to be seeing that happening if we're not careful as a country. So given that this is a huge issue and this has massive consequences for the country at large, what do we do? 
Well, as Christians, we need to do several things. Number one, we need to be praying. Um, there is power in prayer. Number two, we need to be speaking up with our family and friends in a very soft, gentle, but informed way. We, we need to be courageous enough to tell them that we don't agree with them on some issues, even if we don't feel like we can win arguments. Um, my wife taught me this. She is, she is one of my greatest teachers. Uh, when it came to raising our kids, she said, um, you don't have to sit there and argue and argue with them. Just tell them what you think, give them your best explanation of why, and then let it go, and know that they heard you. And sometimes you'll do that, and your kid will just kind of roll their eyes at you and tell you how stupid you are. And a week later, they're making your argument with their friends. And it's not just for parenting. It's not just with kids. It's with our neighbors. It's with our Facebook friends. Um, I often hear people say, you never win an argument. You know, Facebook is a terrible place to make these arguments. You don't win them, blah, blah, blah. I don't disagree with people and have debates with people on Facebook because I'm trying to win them. It's all the people who are reading the back and forth who haven't made up their minds that you're influencing. And if you just stay silent, then they just assume that you agree with the people who are on the, the other side. We need to be involved as voters, especially in local uh, races, especially school board races. Those are the kinds of races that we have always ignored because we don't know who these people are. It's just the school board. But that's where it begins. That's where the indoctrination begins. And so we need to start getting involved. All right. Well, as we wrap up this interview, I want to give you a chance to maybe give our listeners a place to find your church and what the church is doing. So is there a website that they can visit? Sure. They can find us at grace, G-R-A-C-E, S-T-L, that's short for St. Louis, dot O-R-G. Excellent. That was Pastor Marty Haas, a biblical counseling pastor at Grace Church in Maryland Heights, Missouri. Pastor, I really appreciate your time. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening to the Daily Signal podcast. You can find the Daily Signal podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and iHeartRadio. Please be sure to leave us a review and a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts and encourage others to subscribe. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you all tomorrow. The Daily Signal podcast is brought to you by more than half a million members of the Heritage Foundation. It is executive produced by Virginia Allen and Kate Trinko. Sound designed by Lauren Evans, Mark Guiney, and John Pop. For more information, please visit DailySignal.com.